0: of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.
1: Darkcast Network, the light shines brightest on our indie podcasts.
2: In November of 1958, pregnant nurse Olga Duncan goes missing from her apartment in Santa Barbara, California. She will never be seen alive again. The story that follows involves a jealous mother-in-law, two killers for hire, and a fake extortion racket. One that author Deborah Holt Larkin explores in her book, A Lovely Girl, The Tragedy of Olga Duncan and the Trial of One of California's Most Notorious Killers. We talked to Deborah about her book, Growing Up in Ventura, California, and the work of her father, a local newspaper reporter who was the primary source and inspiration for the book. On this episode of California True Crime, A Lovely Girl. Welcome to this episode of California True Crime. I'm Charles, and I'm excited to be with you on this episode because we're doing something a little bit different than our normal episode. We have the honor of having Deborah Holt-Larkin, whose book, A Lovely Girl, The Tragedy of Olga Duncan, and the Trial of One of California's Most Notorious Killers, is our guest today on California True Crime. Her book is coming out October 4th. Welcome, Deborah, and thank you very much for coming on and talking with us.
3: Thank you for having me, Charles. I'm excited to... uh to talk to you about a lovely girl tonight.
2: Now, this book covers a crime in California that is, is uh, very infamous. Uh, we were lucky enough to get an advanced copy of the book. I can honestly say that that everyone who's listening to this needs to go out and get a copy of this. It was a it was a, mm-hmm. uh, an excellent read. And um, really, as crazy as you might think this story is, it's not half as crazy as when you really get into the meat of it. Mm-hmm. So this must be a, a really exciting week for you. Your book's coming mm-hmm. out in just a few days. So, first off, congratulations. Thank you. And before we dive into the book, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from and how you got your started writing?
3: Well, um, as you can see from the book, I grew up in Ventura uh, where this trial, this famous trial took place. And uh, I uh, then went on to the University of California at Davis. And uh, got a degree in uh, American literature. And uh, when I went away to college, I, I told myself, "Well, I'm not sure what I want to be." Or I would tell other people, "I'm not sure what I want to be," but I know I don't want to be a teacher. I, I had that down. I, I don't want to be a teacher. And secretly, I hoped to be a writer. But you know, that seemed like sort of a lofty goal. And mm-hmm. uh, I didn't. My dad was a writer, a newspaper reporter, and. So I kind of knew that it, you know, what writing took, but that always was in the back of my mind. And uh, when I got to Davis, uh, I there was no real creative writing program or anything. So I ended up majoring in that literature, American literature program. And when I graduated, I got sidetracked because, like a lot of women in the nineteen seventies, uh, I got my went on got my teaching credential and ended up being a teacher. <laughs> and i absolutely loved education i i loved my career i was a teacher and then i was 15 years a principal of an elementary school but i really never quite gave up my dream of being a writer so uh i i started while i was still a, a principal i started to uh, enroll i enrolled in the um a creative writing program at university of california at san diego and i started writing and this this um, case the olga duncan murder and the story of elizabeth duncan um just stuck with me because when i was young i became i was 10 years old when it happened and it was just this pivotal moment in my life that um something like this, if someone could just disappear into the night and uh, something so terrible could be, you know, could be this good person could end up murdered and buried on a road that I was very familiar with. So it, it always, uh, it stayed with me and my dad covered the case. I had a lot of his files. And when I started writing, um, I, uh, I planned to fictionalize it. That's what I thought. I thought I was going to write mysteries, fiction. And, uh, but you know what? <laughs> I wrote numerous chapters in not on, on a number of unfinished books to try to tell this story uh, in fiction. But I always got stuck because uh, I realized from my classes that the story is so really crazy and unusual that a publisher... Uh, editor might say that this is too unbelievable to be a uh, fiction. So uh, the truth is stranger than fiction. And then I started and I decided I wanted to uh, go ahead and write the uh, the true crime version, but write it in the creative nonfiction genre. So it would read more like uh, a novel. And uh, so I, so I, that answer your question? <laughs> no,
2: that that's perfect. And and um before, because before we dive into that, because we have a lot of questions that we really want to get into mm-hmm. the meat. But um, the, this this case of uh, Elizabeth and Olga, it, like you said, it's so crazy mm-hmm. that I, I'm I'm with you. If you pitch this to some, you know, to a right. movie producer or like, uh-huh. they wouldn't believe you. This case is one that we've actually in California True Crime have wanted to cover almost from when mm-hmm. we started, actually, Jessica had, has had this on the list from almost day one. Oh, um, and it involves this horrific murder in 1958. Um, and you know, you talk about in your book that, and you just mentioned that it really draws you to true crime. Can you give a little background on this case and maybe just the high points of really what, sure. who are these women and, and what was okay. involved in, in 58?
3: Okay. Well, um, uh, a young, uh, canadian nurse had uh come to santa barbara california because she got a job at a hospital in in santa barbara and um uh in the no no good deed goes unpunished mrs duncan uh tried to commit suicide by taking an overdose of pills and this elizabeth duncan ended up in the hospital olga was one of the nurses that was um you know, helping, you know, bringing her right. back, her health. She was she was one of Mrs. Duncan's nurses. And she met Mrs. Duncan's son, Frank, who was a young criminal defense attorney in Santa Barbara. And uh, from the get-go, Elizabeth Duncan hated Olga. She didn't want her son to have anything to do with her because she really, she didn't want to, uh, Frank to get married because she didn't want to lose his financial support. So, let me. Uh, so, once they got married yeah. secretly, Frank didn't tell his mother they were getting married. Oh wow! Uh, they they got married. By this point, Olga was already pregnant. He probably only lived with her full time. Frank only lived with her for about three weeks, and Missus Duncan just started harassing Olga and calling her and uh, telling her she was no good and um, she and she she was uh, called her a foreigner. Olga was from uh, Canada, and <laughs> Mrs. Duncan said she didn't want her son to be married to any foreigner. So that was supposedly one of the things that, that she didn't like about Olga. So Frank uh, got, uh, they they he kept seeing Olga, and, and when Frank testified, he said he thought that if he could just keep kind of things um, on an even keel, that his mother would come around when the baby was born. So he really, he, that's why he was living according to him uh, at his mother's apartment.
2: So the belief and, that if he, if he stayed, if he stayed there with his mom and kind of coaxing her and showing, right. Hey, Olga's
3: mm-hmm.
2: my wife, we're going to have a child. It's, and you're yes, gonna, right.
3: Okay. That's what Frank thought. Uh, he should have known better because he he knew his mother,
4: Right.
3: but um he uh, testified on the stand that he uh, at the trial that he felt like a yo-yo, uh, trying to please uh, two women, and it and it was impossible. So uh, Olga was living on her own. In an apartment in, in um, Santa Barbara, and uh, she disappeared. She disappeared from her um, her apartment one night, and uh, her she had her nurse friends uh, reported her missing because she didn't show up. At, uh for work the next morning, she was a surgical nurse and uh she didn't come in, and that wasn't like her at all. And so uh the Santa Barbara police were investigating this uh crime for um this whole month. They they were they they just re- they kind of had suspicions, they had what they had heard about um Mrs. Uh Duncan's uh treatment of olga Mm -hmm. but they had absolutely no evidence and um she was insisting that she uh had nothing to do with it didn't know where olga was that olga probably just ran off Mm -hmm. and even frank was saying that he was saying oh i think she's mad at me because i was living with my mother and she's just really um doing this uh to upset me and make me look bad Mm -hmm. and um So eventually the Santa Barbara police uh, were able to interview uh, some of Mrs. Duncan's acquaintances, and they they had a breakthrough. So Mm -hmm. Mrs. Duncan, uh, Olga's gone, and the uh, two killers are trying to get their money because she had hired Mm -hmm. these two men. And um, so she has to. She has no money. She she never has. Everything she has is Frank's that she has to ask for. Does she takes a a, a check that Frank had given her and cashes it and, and makes a down payment with these guys? But then she has to explain to where Frank to Frank where um she what happened to that check? So she makes up this lie. The woman's a pathological liar and said, well, she had to pay off blackmailers. There there was guys blackmailing her because of this really, it was a ridiculous story. So Frank gets, is really furious about it and drags his mother down to the police station to report this blackmail. And so the police started to kind of figure out and they had some, so anyway, so that was going there. And eventually they got to one of the killers, got him to uh, confess and show them where the body was. And so when they found the body, they discovered that it was just inside the Ventura County line, and they had evidence that Olga was killed at that gravesite. So that transferred the whole case to Ventura, where I was living, where my dad was a reporter, where the trial took place, and where the the journalists from all over the country came to that trial. And um, so that's, in a nutshell, what happened. And then the trial comes along, and a lot more comes out. So, really, that was just the that's that was just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more in the book about the details of what what happened.
2: It's those details that really come alive in the book, and that that really highlight not only Ventura but kind of the ramifications of of the crime. And and one of the things that you you do in the book that we really liked was that you really. Pay tribute uh to the places and the culture of ventura and then we try to do that on this show uh, and your own personal story is woven throughout the book um right. and this you said this this crime uh, happened in 58 and you're you're a child living in there with your in Ventura with your family could you t- tell us a little bit more about your personal connection you, you mentioned your father is sure. a, a crime reporter
3: oh he is and he's a crime recorder, uh, for the, was a crime recorder for the Ventura County Star Free Press. And, uh, it w- you know, it was Ventura was about 30,000 people back then, so it's a reasonably s- small paper. So he did a lot of things. He covered politics, he covered crime, but he also wrote a weekly column that he wrote about everything,
4: uh-huh. uh,
3: but he also wrote a lot of funny things about... Um, our family at the time I was embarrassed <laughs> about it I don't like it but now I don't know uh you know I don't know I, I sometimes say to describe the book would people know your your generation uh Irma bombbeck or Dave yeah. Barry yeah okay I think my so generation
2: Dave, would know Dave, Irma Bombeck Dave, and Dave ba- Barry Dave. I I, oh, okay. I don't necessarily know but uh in case you know in case you're listening to this and don't there's uh we and and there's those are the big, kind of the bigger ones, but yes. what we've seen a lot, especially doing newspaper archival research, is a lot of communities have those type of, of community right. columnists that are that are really writing about, you know, everyday life from a humorous perspective right. that shows a kind of um, the intricacies or the, you know, pull back the curtain a little bit on what life is like right. in our area.
3: Right. And my dad was a great writer, and he wrote and so when he wrote about the family, it was all humorous things so I sometimes when they used when i used to just describe my book, I'd say, well, it's Dave Barry meets ann rule in fargo <laughs> and uh, because uh there it is um every every family chapter that's what i call the the ones that, that about my life has something about what's going on with the crime and the investigation. So it is just intertwined. And again, I was uh, an obsessed little girl about this. I was obsessed with Olga, so upset that this had happened to her. Mm -hmm. You know, why would this happen? Um, And then uh, the, um, crime procedurals and so that's all written in first person the crime procedurals are is is in third person point so, of view.
2: so that idea of because i think this is really and if, if you haven't caught on if you're listening to this one of the really interesting things about about your book deborah was the fact that it is woven like that that it is it's mm-hmm. not just the standard true crime book which mm-hmm. i think why why it appealed to us because it was more than just just the case you do an amazing amount of research on Olga's life and the case and Elizabeth and the, and the trial, but, but juxtaposed with that is your chapters on your life and your connections to that. Was that your plan from the start? Or did that develop as a result of your research?
3: Right. Well, it was really just kind of, uh, you know, an accident, uh, I'm, I'm a part of the writing community in San Diego called San Diego Writers Inc. And I many years had gone to have gone to a, a reading critique group. And I used to bring in uh, pages that were personal essays, a lot of them about my family. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I would also sometimes write about, you know, and my attempts to uh, write about uh, the Duncan case. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one night I brought in. An essay about how my dad had uh named uh his new his the, his first power uh lawnmower the mrs. D after Mrs. Duncan and that it had cut off the ends of two of his fingers oh. uh what I was trying well the uh, the lawnmower apparently was hard to start and so he didn't <laughs> like to stop it and he was trying to get gas right. uh, grass out of there, so anyway, that's how that happened so in that essay, I said some things about the crime and who this Elizabeth, this Mrs. D was, the real one. And the leader of the group said, you know, why don't you put those two things together? Why don't you write about what's going on your family? Because these, these family um, essays you're writing are so great. And then because you were so obsessed and your dad was, you know, he was the only reporter uh, the, the, there was media from all over the country, but he was the only reporter that covered uh, all three of the trials. He was in every session, all three of the trials, and all the way to a witness to the executions. So uh, I had, you know, plenty of that to work with. I had my dad's files and uh, the transcripts. That's another story that at how it, the book couldn't have been written without the 5,000 pages of transcripts from their trial.
2: Now, did you get those directly from or is that something that your father had in his research
3: no he did not have it i got it from the da's office in um uh, ventura and uh I called them and I think around, I don't know, sometime in middle 2000 or something. And thankfully the, the, um, the DAs back then she was called a secretary, I guess, um, personal assistant now. Anyway, she was the same woman that had been there all the oh way back God. when, and she had, she knew my dad, she was just about to retire. She was a young woman during the time and she was just about, a young know, just uh, she was a young woman back there, but she she liked my dad and, and um, everybody did. And so I just said, well, you know, I'm writing this uh, book. It's about my dad and the trial, and I, I would like to get those. And she was so nice. And she said, you know what? I'm going to get them for you at at our cost. So she ran them all off herself. Oh, wow. And I got all 5,000 of them, pages. But then I found out later... That somebody else who who I also know and I met I mention him at the end of the book and the acknowledgements. Uh, he was a paper boy at the time of the uh, the Duncan case, oh, wow. and and he would when he was folding his papers to take on his bicycle to deliver them. I think he said he was he was um, twelve or thirteen at the time. He was a little older than I was, and he became fascinated with the case and was reading all the articles. Then he became an attorney and eventually he was hired by a, a law firm in um Oxnard that was started by the district attorney who had uh prosecuted the case. Oh wow. And he was dead by the time he passed on by the time that Bob was hired. But anyway, he he knew that he was the founding attorney. So the uh, the law, the law firm closed uh and uh was closing up and Bob was um uh you know, cleaning out their, their law mm-hmm. library. And he found these old, dusty, bound transcripts up on this top shelf. Oh, in my the goodness. And he reopens it up. Well, as his the paper boy that he was, because he grew up in Ventura, <laughs> he knew exactly what it, they were. And he contacted the VA's office and they said, oh, my God, we have been looking for these. They, they have been lost for all these years. And it turned out that Roy Gustafson, the, the DA, after everything was fully adjudicated, he took the transcripts with him because he was trying to write a memoir about, wow. uh, what had happened. And, uh, and that unpublished memoir was also up there. So oh, wow. after I, you know, talked to Bob, cause I was missing a few sections of the transcript and he had them all electronic. So I got him, he says, well, you know, I have this memoir that, that Roy Gustafson wrote that was never published. If you'd like to look at that. And I said, well, yeah, Really wanted. So I had I knew what kind of what was in his head, what he thought about yeah. some of these witnesses, how he worried about the trial going bad at one point. And so that was very helpful. So I, I was just a lot of luck involved in writing this.
2: You know, and you alluded to it I, I think earlier when we were talking about this, is that this this book is it's written. Parts of it are written like almost like a story, or with con- uh, like conversations right. uh, and just descriptive details. Um, right. it, it's not a like a, and I won't. Not all true crime is dry, obviously, but you know, it's not just an antiseptic look at a case or or a court. Tra- or, you it, know, retelling of the court right. transcript. How did you develop the 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 well, the people's tone of voice or things like that? Did that come from this unpublished manuscript and well, what you extrapolated?
3: For a lot of the voices, it came from their testimony at the trial, mm-hmm. because the DAs was obviously talking all the time, mm-hmm. and those transcripts were a goldmine. When I was reading them, it was like I almost felt at some top points that I was in the courtroom with all these people, because um, it was it was you know quite dramatic a lot of it. But, but right. I, I felt like I could get but, but some of the the just by the way they spoke. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then, uh, of course, my dad, I heard his his right. voice in my head all the time, so I could write that. And um, there was, uh, the, the way that the press covered it, it, it's a little different than I think it goes on now. For instance, that they would describe... Um, Witnesses on the stand, everything that they were wearing, what mm-hmm. their hairstyle was, and 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 they they did a lot of description of of those kinds of things. And I was researching four newspapers, and when all of them said, you know, kind of a similar thing, um I felt okay. I I really have got this, mm-hmm. and that's how I could do that. I could write. Uh, I'm feeling like I'm telling the truth because I had so much material mm-hmm. uh, to. To work with, and so when I wrote a scene, and, and again I mentioned that I wrote this in the genre they call creative nonfiction. Right, right. When I wrote a scene, um, for instance, when the the police detective went to interview Frank at his apartment, when mm-hmm. right when Olga had disappeared, um, everything that came out of Frank's mouth had come out somewhere else in a newspaper interview
4: okay.
3: or uh, 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 the trials transcript or a lot of he gave a lot of interviews. The only things that I might have fictionalized is when it when the detective walks in the room saying, oh, uh, I offer you a, a, a cup of coffee, but I don't have it any made right. right now. Or um, I even described the furniture because at some place along the way, I had found that that. Um, Mrs. Duncan had ordered a bunch of uh, Danish modern furniture that was in the apartment or something. So I described <laughs> it that way. And uh, so there was the, on- the only things that were fictionalized, maybe little details. Even the right. weather is for real. I looked up all of that weather and the things that happened the same day. When we're coming back from my grandmother's on the, um, uh, the day that Mrs. Duncan was arrested, and my dad hears it on the radio and you know he that he was so mad. But we're my sister is really interested in this monkey that has been shot into space called um Gordo or something. Mm-hmm. And I remembered that and I looked it up, and sure enough, that is what that that space monkey was uh uh shot into space the same day that Mrs. uh Duncan oh, was that's... so if I put in uh another fact in that chapter the ta- that you can count on it that that really happened that day
2: and i i think that's one of the things that we've talked about going over going over the book and and preparing for this was that again if if one thing that we kind of really like or pride ourselves on i think is is our research uh, on a particular place or, or or do as much as we can uh about a crime and to see the exhaustive amount of research that you've done on this. um, It's, it's amazing, but it also gives a real sense of, of place of again, not just the crime, but of Ventura at that time. And I think that it's, if you, you know, again, if you're listening to this and and enjoy California true crime, this is, this is right in the vein of, of what we, what Mm -hmm. we try to do. So. Yeah.
3: And I really wanted to give that sense of crime because 1958, was just before uh you know the 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 dramatic changes that happened in the 1960s Mm -hmm. and in 1958 it was really you know pretty innocent that that that's what i think was affected me we didn't expect this kind of violent crime in our small small town might have been happening up down in los angeles or up in san francisco but but not in our small town and um uh, Another way that I was able to get and remember some of the details is, like I said, my dad wrote this weekly column, and a lot Mm -hmm. of times it was on our family, and uh, he saved many of those columns in his home office. He had a big black trash bag that he threw the columns (laughs) in, (laughs) and uh, so when he passed away, my mother uh, let me take them, and so uh, it it was... uh, you know, it was a, it was a treasure. It was really to have those old, to read those because it just brought back, right. uh, so many memories. And, um, also I spent a lot of time, uh, on the microfish uh, machine, my microfiche machines, right. In both the, the the L A library, the Ventura library, especially the Ventura library, and the Santa Barbara library. Well, when you're going through those, mm-hmm. you have a whole page of the a newspaper, and so yeah, I would get to the part on um, the case and read that and make copy. But I was also was reading all these other yeah. little things, and so that really, uh, you know, I, I would take notes and uh, think, oh, okay, this happened the same day that this happened in court, and you know, and and plus I do, I have got my dad's memory. I I really have, I can't tell you exactly what I had for dinner two days ago, but I remember, you know, what happened uh, in 1958. I I have a real clear memory, but those columns were, were great, you know, to to help jog my memory.
2: Well, and and if you follow us on, on social media, you know, that We are huge fans of uh, microfish monster. We do uh, microfish Mondays. Uh, In fact, a lot of our research is done in uh, libraries and archives around Central California, and we can get to Southern and and, and even further north. Um, But it is true that you don't now so much of what we consume is just the just the article, aside from the ads, on Mm -hmm. electronically. But when you do look at those old newspapers you are capturing a community in a moment of, of what's important to that community at that time. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I absolutely love that. And so speaking of your father, Mm -hmm. because his voice was so prevalent as you wrote this and put this together, do you feel that how was his influence on your outlook on the case? Did you go in knowing, having a clear idea of of how you were going to put this together did your father's influence kind of sway you in a direction, or was this more of a discovery as you went?
3: Well, he yeah, was, there was some discovery, but um, he yes, he influenced me, and he he talked about that case long after the trial, and I think that I've quoted um, something in the book at the end, uh, the um, in the aftermath, what, what happened happened, everybody, and uh, when he wrote something in the paper, and, and I think when the DA. Um, passed away, but he said it was the, the most memorable crime that he had ever covered, and that he expects that if he is lives for another 20 years, he will still be boring young reporters in the newsroom uh, <laughs> talking about <laughs> the Elizabeth Duncan case. And uh, yeah, it was with him, and, and he was really, you know, I kind of considered the expert on it later on. They would write articles every you know, five-year anniversary, 10-year anniversary, 20-year anniversary, and um, he was the go-to guy um, for anything about that case.
0: If you like weird and strange history, then I have the podcast for you. My name is Brenda, and I'm the host of Horrifying History. Are you into the dark side of history? Horrifying History tells you about the side of history that people don't normally talk about, We talk about the tales of haunted places, infamous true crimes, cursed items, and unsolved mysteries, and then we look into the science and documentation to see where does the truth actually lie. Want to get spooky with us? Get your Horrifying History fix by subscribing to Horrifying History, which you can find on any major podcast provider.
1: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
0: I never win and tell.
1: Well, there you have it. You could get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Kind of shifting gears a little bit back to the case, mm-hmm. um, you know, as you as you alluded to, and and you'll and and everyone will find out when they're reading your book. And if you if you haven't already researched the case, or, or know that three people are actually guilty or of of the actual murdering of Olga, Correct. but a lot of focus gets put on Elizabeth Duncan as as the architect of this entire tragedy.
4: Yeah.
2: Um, and one of the most belie- unbelievable things, and and is is how her son is wrapped up in this. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about like his role um you uh-huh. you kind of talked about his role leading up to like which is again it's absolutely fascinating that he drags his mom in to report right. a crime when she's guilty of another one but what's his what is what becomes his role after she gets arrested
3: well he jumped on her defense he was her only defense attorney he Um, And and so if if you talk to people in Ventura that grew up that, you know, they just have a little information. A lot of people think that somehow Frank Duncan was part of the conspiracy and that he got away with murder. And that's, you know, that. My dad certainly never said anything like mm-hmm. like anything like that. But I certainly discovered from all the research that no, even the district attorney didn't believe that Frank had anything mm-hmm. to do with it. He, in fact, the DA said in his memoir that they would have never solved the case if Frank hadn't dragged his mom down to the uh, oh, Santa Barbara wow. Police Department to report that uh, that supposed blackmail scheme. Um, so no, Frank didn't have anything to do with it. But I think that. As crazy as Mrs. Duncan was, and and first I also want to say that there's things on the internet that suggest that there was an incestuous relationship between Frank Duncan and his mother, and I do not believe that. And even in the DA's, one of the closing arguments, because the defense attorney had called it, you know, objected and called out about him, you know, kind of insinuating, he would Mm -hmm. insinuate, um, and the DA said, well, I never... I never said that. I said that there was an unusual relationship. I never mm-hmm. meant to suggest that there was a sexual. Well, he did, and I think he he kind of ginned that up um, right. and, in the interviews without ever saying it directly to maybe help uh, with the jury pool. You know, for everybody to think that that's what was really going on. To taint, I think that,
2: taint them with an idea, uh-huh. like, okay, I do
3: believe that he probably did that. Um, guftison was a really competent competent a district attorney Uh and uh he had his eyes on being the governor of california so a lot of people after i after i read all this were saying that you know guftison was going to use this case as a stepping stone to run for governor and that uh you know the more interest he could generate the better but um i think what i think was frank's motivation i mean i think he loved his mother his mother certainly thought he was the most wonderful kid that ever walked the earth i mean she did she just thought and so you know i think a child responds to that when somebody thinks that you are so wonderful yeah there was a love connection between them but frank i believe was trying to save his his uh, mother from the gas chamber Mm -hmm. and uh he was a criminal defense attorney and i this is the 1950s and i think that he felt that uh district attorneys did not play fair and that uh they were unfair to criminal de- defendants and uh, so i really think that frank's main motivation was uh to to be like a consulting to consult with his um his mother's defense attorney and also to be to be there by her side through mm-hmm. the whole thing um I think that he was interested in saving his mother from the, from being uh executed, and California was at the time this this happened there was no such thing as life in prison without the possibility right. of parole. If you got convicted of a if you got a life sentence, you were still eligible for parole after seven years. Mm-hmm. And boy, Gustafson really played that up. Do we want to see Mrs. Duncan uh, walk in the streets in seven years? And, and, you know, her attorney tried to say, well, that really is not going to happen. That never happens. Um, She'll be an old woman if she, you know, if they ever let her out. But I think that swayed the the jury, too, to, to, um, to pronounce this death sentence. Well,
2: and so much, you know, we've seen it, too. And And I'm sure you know you being part of the true crime community as well we see mm-hmm. how people can kind of conflagrate and and uh blow up certain facts without seeing everything the whole context right. um right. And it's it's something it's something again. I think that that you do uh, really well in the book is you you take the factual approach and try to m- make sure that you see the whole picture of of Ooh. the people involved. But on on that part about the death penalty, the thing that really struck us when going through this was uh, and as uh, Louis Moya and Baldonado, who mm-hmm. Duncan hired to kill Olga, they testify in the case against her. And plead guilty to the crime, but unlike what we've seen in other cases that we've researched, there's no plea deal. Uh, They're sentenced to death
3: How Interesting, I know. Yeah, uh, What happened was, uh, Baldonado, uh, Augustine Bald- Baldonado was not a super smart guy. And this was before Miranda. This was before you had That's the right, right to write to an attorney. When you're being questioned, questioned, you had a right to an attorney only after you were arraigned in court.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And so they were poor. They couldn't afford any attorneys. And uh, he was eventually interviewed uh, by a policeman, uh, a, a, a Ventura sheriff, who had known Baldonado when he was a young boy. And uh, he came from, I mean, this guy said um, that. Uh, they his family, the kids in, in uh, Gus Baldonado's family might as well have been raised by wolves that they were so mm-hmm. neglected, and you know, it was a really terrible situation. And uh, nobody could, he, he just was sort of a follower. I don't think mm-hmm. he had really cared about doing this, wanted to be involved in it, but he, he just let himself get get taken away, right? But um, and so he did it, and then uh the detective who te- who gave interviews about this that's how I know how how it went and and I'll later testified at his trial about how he was questioned and he convinced uh Gus that he had children too and that how would he feel if his uh children were uh murdered and or disappeared and he never knew what happened to him. And so, uh, and he encouraged him to tell his side of the story before the others, you know, totally blamed it on him.
4: Right.
3: So he told it, he, he told them what they did and, um, uh, you know, signed his confession and they said, well, would you be willing to take us to where you buried her? And uh, so he said, yeah, I think I, so they put him in a car and they took him out there. So, you know, once that was all done, mm-hmm. There wasn't and this, so then Louis Moya, uh he was trying to say, well, you know, Gus is lying. I I didn't have anything to do with that, that's crazy. Uh but he was kind of um worried about his own salvation. This was the fifties, right? And he was very worried about that. And uh he kept asking what he was arrested on a parole violation and uh um, and Boy was in jail on a failure to provide child support if you can believe that back then wow. you, sometimes uh, men got thrown in jail for not right. and it was always men uh, got thrown in jail for not supporting so they were held in jail on these charges and so um he asked if he could um he, he was trying to get money from his mother in texas for an attorney but you know she wasn't coming up mm-hmm. with it and uh so he asked them if he could uh talk to um, a minister. Uh, that that wouldn't cost anything right and they said yeah you want to see a catholic priest and he said no i, w- I want to see a minister uh with a you know that's in charge of a church uh-huh. so they had just the guy for him because um this guy reverend Greshot, uh that had a church in ventura was frequently came uh to the jail and and helped prisoners and talked to prisoners and he was also sort of a friend of police so He came that night, and I know what happened in this interview because Reverend Gresham testified about it all at Moya's trial. And he came in and he said, you know, uh, he was immediately crying, and can you help me, and can we pray together? And um, and the Reverend said, well, you know, it doesn't um, do you any good to just confess to God if you're going to lie here on earth to the police. And Moyes said, well, can you get me a Bible? Could we read from the Bible? And he said, well, okay, yeah, but it, it's not... And I, I, I'm not using the phrases he used because some of them were Bible phrases. Right. Um, and so uh, he talked to him about that, and eventually Moyes said, okay, I'm ready to tell the truth. And they got down on their knees and they prayed. And uh, uh, Baldonado didn't exactly... Uh, it, uh, confessed to what happened he just said he was ready to tell the truth so then uh reverend gresham left and he told the police he says well i think he's ready to, to confess but they they just went ahead and sent him back to a cell about an hour later he called for the detective and said okay i want to tell you what happened wow. and his story was pretty much the same mm-hmm. as So then when they got to the arraignment and they were finally um, uh, provided attorneys, their attorney who who was, they were, they were appointed really good attorneys by the judge. They, one of them later became a a judge himself and was a state senator for a while um, in, in, from uh, Ventura to the state legislature. And uh, he said in an interview, I read, you know, by the time I got to him, he confessed four times already, you know, the grand jury. Um, at the, you know, all these times he confessed. So he said, all I could do was try to get them uh, a life sentence instead of the death penalty. But, um, so he tried to deal that, but uh, Roy Gustafson would have none of it. He said, "Uh -uh." Uh, uh-uh. So uh, all he could do was he felt that, that if that, the, that Moya would be better off if he was tried separately from Mrs. Duncan, uh-huh. and Baldonado's attorney was sort of following along. Whatever he said, so he went to the um, DA and said, "Well, he'll te- he can testify for at, at, or uh, he'll testify if he can get a separate trial, and he won't get the death penalty." And the DA, DA said, "Well, I'll give him a separate trial if he." Uh, testifies, but I'm not taking the death penalty off the table. And that's what they both did. Wow. They had a pen. So after Elizabeth Duncan's trial was over, they each had their own penalty trial. And that's when they put on all this mitigating circumstances their attorneys attempted to, right. but the juries weren't going along with it. Uh, that's in- they they and- opposed the death penalty.
2: Yeah. And I, I would be interested to, I mean, it w- if, if a jury in 2022 would, would do the same thing or would they, would they go with the life without the possibility of parole?
3: I, I think, I don't think that Elizabeth Duncan would get the death penalty today because I don't think she was really in danger to com- committing any other crimes.
4: Right. Right. Um,
3: so I think, I I doubt that she would have, as far as the other two, I mean, they were really, they were, Kind of petty criminals before this, never violent or anything, right. but that was such a violent crime. Mm-hmm. But their testimony is really what convicted Elizabeth Duncan. So I think that the DA, if they'd had, if they, well, if they'd had, if they'd had uh, lawyers while they were questioning, I'm not sure the case would ever have been solved because yeah. the fact that that boss, Gus Baldonado said, "Yeah, okay, I'll do this for my children, and I'll show you." I mean, I just don't think that that would happen. They almost pulled off the perfect crime.
2: Well, in another instance of this crime going on, could have went an entirely different way, you know, but for the act of this, you know, the person who actually committed the crime con- confessing. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's right. Uh, that it's um, it's it's crazy. They uh, had
3: some other evidence that Mrs. Duncan had a sidekick, an eighty-year-old woman named Emma Short who was her sidekick who went everywhere with her when she shopped all over Santa Barbara looking for criminals. So they would have had some circumstantial evidence, but they wouldn't have it a body.
2: Yeah. If you're listening to this and you, and you had to rewind because Deborah said an 80 year old sidekick again, this is all in the book. And another reason why you need to pick this up (laughs) because uh, the story is, we're just scratching the surface of what's in here, and right. it, it's amazing. Um, yeah. One thing that really, I guess not, we always say this, but a, another thing that stood out to us and really, you know, upon reading it really kind of made us all angry. We, we've been talking a lot the, amongst ourselves, and we've done uh, recently done an episode on, on clemency, and, and one of the things that we, we like to look at is the trial and how the trial is the process of that as well, mm-hmm. uh, as j- just the crime. But in this case during the penalty phase when Elizabeth Duncan's lawyer is making his closing argument I know <laughs> he tells the jury that Olga forgives her Olga forgives Elizabeth
3: he yeah that she would she was a nice lady she would have probably forgive her
2: And if is there, there. Is, this this is something that really stuck with us and really made us angry um yeah. we we've covered a case uh, at least one crime in on in our in Our research where somebody tried something similar, but um, is there something like that that stuck out with you when you researched this and, and that really got you angry while you were writing it?
3: You know, I, I don't know about angry, I I just accepted that this was this case was you know a long time ago and that people right. uh approach things very differently, and um, you know, I guess maybe that's there was there's this religion in this book about mm-hmm. um, I. The, the DA was very eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and right. that kind of thing. And so I think Sullivan was trying to answer some of that. Well, Christianity is built oh. on forgiveness. And so Olga, I think, would forgive her. But the DA, he got to speak again um, after, because the, the, the uh, uh, prosecution always gets to speak after the defense mm-hmm. and the closing arguments. And uh, he he said something like, you know, I don't think that Olga Duncan would be appreciate the, the um the way she left this mm-hmm. earth and I know she, I wouldn't have either. And I, I forget his words were were really right. quite cutting and they they kind of took care of what Sullivan had said.
2: So we're getting close to the end. And okay. um before we uh before we end, is there something is what's one thing you want your readers to take away from this book?
3: I guess I want my readers to take away from this book is that um you know, life's a little bit random, and uh, what I was looking for as a child, I wanted uh, things to be, uh, you know, I I had a little girl's mind. I was actually quite more an eye for, I was with Gustafson. I wanted uh, everybody to really get punished for this, but in the end, uh, after the executions, I'm reading the, uh, uh, and I had been, you know, 10 years old but i'm pressing that i think she should be executed and i I had read my dad's articles about the executions that he'd written that were quite thoughtful and uh there was an interview with the warden and uh the warden said you know uh a reporter asked him some sort of a question and he says you know we do this on behalf of the people from of california nobody here wants to do this.'" Mm-hmm. and i don't really think it uh lowers the the murder rate in california mm-hmm. when we are executing people so you know i read that and that was sort of and then you know right on the same page there's an article about um a, a, a boy and girl college student uh who were swimming and and in a in a swimming hole up in northern california and uh, some guy comes along and the girl is murdered or the man's murdered and, uh, she disappears. And, you know, that, that kind of stuck with me is okay. Uh, it, it may be this, what I thought would solve things, this, this death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, it maybe it really doesn't. And, um, and so I guess that, but also that life's complicated You know, everything wasn't as simple with Frank Duncan as I thought it would be Mm -hmm. when I started doing the research. You know, he—I think that I had a better understanding of what he was trying to accomplish. And uh, yeah, he was a jerk that um, he left his pregnant wife and went back and lived at home with his mother. But you know, he was afraid she'd commit suicide. He'd already Mm -hmm. she'd already attempted it, and she was a, a really a nut job. So yeah, I think I had a little more uh appreciation or a little, i could see a little more nuances in people um that they weren't all bad and you know i i really knew that but uh and also of of gus baldonado and Luis moye um there were interviews uh that i read in, in, in about them where they interviewed some of their previous um elementary school teachers and one just said you know i can't believe this he was just uh, such a nice boy, and just you know, he lived in such a terrible environment. And I get went over to the house, and we tried to help, and, and it was awful. And then Louis Moya's teacher said he was the captain of the safety patrol. He was on the 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 district's uh, basketball. He, his team won the district's basketball tournament, and uh, he had lots of friends. And he said, all I can remember is this um, this really sweet boy. Who wanted to join in and be and join in and in everything. And I just can't fathom what could have possibly happened to them.
2: I love how you say that because I think what we've always tried to do is show something larger than just the crime and how not only do these crimes affect the people involved, but also the communities involved. And these have ripples that go out. And the nuance somebody sometimes can be lost in what you read on a quick Twitter feed or mm-hmm. a snapshot online yeah. or in a, in a blog post. And I think, uh, you know, I, I think your book does an excellent job of not only showing that nuance, but also showing the, the larger scope of what's going on around. So, right.
3: and I would like to say, since this is the end, um, because I feel like that one of the, uh, just as a couple of lines that Roy Guffson said, the DA said in his summation, Um, Because I think those of us that are interested in true crime, especially those of us are women, Mm -hmm. uh, at least for me, I became interested because I felt vulnerable, not because I was interested in the, um, you know, the the gory murders and violence. I had no interest in that, but I felt vulnerable and I was part of why I was reading it. I was interested to read about you know, the kind of the psychological motivations. Mm-hmm. But I was also reading maybe to pick up some tips on how I might avoid this. Right. I, I was particularly interested in reading about the women who got away from right. some serial killer. So, okay, maybe I can employ that. But anyway, Roy Gusterson, Gusterson the, the Ventura District Attorney, says in his summation at the to the jury at Mrs. Duncan's trial, he said, one of the pities of this case is that girl who was so brutally murdered on the night of November 17th, might have been any girl, anybody's sister, anybody's daughter, any girl could have been Elizabeth Duncan's victim if she happened to marry Frank Duncan. Now I realize I'm not likely to be murdered by uh, a maniac, a homicidal maniac, but um, any more likely somehow it's a personal, and this was a personal killing. Uh, but that's, it could have been it, anybody. It was nothing that Olga, no mistake, she made. She wasn't a reckless woman. She was just described as this really lovely, sweet girl who was very devoted to her nurse, to being a nurse, and but she got herself in the wrong situation.
2: Uh, again, thank you so much, uh, yeah. Debra. Uh, this has been amazing. The book is A Lovely Girl, the tragedy of Olga Duncan and the trial of one of California's most notorious killers. It's published by Pegasus Books. Deborah, where can people find where can they where can they find the book? Like where is well, uh,
3: if they want to see more, they can go to my my website has lots of links to Amazon, to Barnes and Noble, to, to a whole bunch of different places. And that's Deborah Holt dot com. Just all one, my my three names all together lowercase.com and that will take you to it but also if you it's in the system so if you go to your local bookstore that you like uh you can uh, ask them about it they'll they'll pull it up on their computer and if they don't have it they can order it for you and of course you can get it uh, on amazon um on uh, october 4th if you put in a pre-order it'll be delivered to you mm-hmm. on tuesday
2: <laughs> what's next for you uh, n- another book in the works or uh, well
3: uh, this this time i want to write a fiction i want to write a mystery okay i had this story that i really felt needed to be told and i wanted to tell it and um uh, non was definitely the best way to go about it mm-hmm. even though it took me forever to do all that research and and really learned to be a writer as I was writing it, mm-hmm. uh, because I wrote, rewrote it so many drafts. Uh, but now I, I liked—I would like to write uh, just a fiction book, a mystery, and I have a lot of ideas. But as for me now, I'm going on a book tour. Um, uh, I'll be leaving here uh, next week, and I will be in Chaucer's Books in Santa Barbara on um, the day the book comes out, uh, Tuesday, October 4th. At, I think it's six o'clock. It's on State Street in Santa Barbara. And I'm there because that's where it all began. That's where Olga was kidnapped. And that's where oh, wow. I will launch my book. And then two nights later, I will be at Timber Books in Ventura. Uh, uh, and that, because that is where Olga was murdered and that's where the trial was. And uh, then I, after that, um, I will be down back in San Diego, back home in San Diego, and I'll be at Warwick's Books in La Jolla on the night of October 10th. Um, oh and then there's a book festival in Coronado, I think the day before, or Saturday before the 8th, that I'll, I'll be there too with my books and meeting people oh, sure. at the Coronado uh, Writers Festival, or the, the San Diego Writers Festival that will be in Coronado. I'll be there in a booth with my books and, and meet people and talk about my book.
2: So, we'll have those dates on our website, CaliforniaTrueCrime.com. Check out our social media because, as uh, after or around the fourth, we're going to be doing a giveaway for copies of Deborah's book. We have two copies that we're going to give away to uh, listeners. So, make sure that you're watching our social media feeds for that, uh, for more details on how how you can win and make sure that if you're anywhere that Deborah's going to be check her out if nothing else go out and get a copy of the book uh it's it's a great read um it's, again, if you like California True Crime, you're listening to this. This is a perfect opportunity. We would not share you wrong. Uh, we think that you will definitely enjoy this. So, again, we really want to thank you for joining us today. We're excited to have uh, our listeners read it. If you're listening to this and you've read it, please give a shout out. Um, tag us on social media. Again, congratulations, Deborah, on the book. And thank we you. hope you come back and
1: join us
4: I in would the love future. To. Sure.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of California True Crime on the DarkCast Network. For a full list of sources, as well as more information on the case, head over to our webpage at californiatruecrime.com, where you can support the show by joining our Patreon, which has the option of ad-free episodes. Our web store is up and running with some new California True Crime merchandise, such as t-shirts, mugs, and special episode exclusive stickers. If you'd like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Cali True Crime. Make sure that you subscribe to our show to get our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review or tell a friend to get the word out about California True Crime. We'd like to thank our quality control engineer, Melanie Duncan. This was recorded at Snail Ranch Studios and The Hangar.